Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, the best podcast for all things metal guitar. I'm your host, A.L. Levy, and I'm thrilled to have two of the most incredible guitarists on the planet with me today. Returning to the podcast is Rafael Trujillo, a master guitarist who has played with Obscura, you know, that unbelievable tech death metal band, but now he dominates with Obsidious, who is another incredible band that you should check out. Joining us for the first time is the immensely talented Spiro Ducias, known for his work with Platonist and his Instagram page, which you really should go check out if you want to get really depressed about your own guitar playing. These two virtuosos are not only masters of their craft, but they also lent their incredible talent to my band Doth's latest single, No Rest, No End, with some guest solos. It's an honor to have them on the show to discuss their impressive trajectories and their creative process. So let's get into this. Spiro Ducias and Rafael Trujillo, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It's the first time you guys, quote unquote, meet, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. For the very first time. Yeah, Rafael, I've been wanting to say that record you guys just put out is fucking crazy. Dude. Yeah, it is. Oh, thanks. That song, Delusion. Yeah. Yeah, I was listening to that recently, but that like first verse, you know, there, there's like a, just that riff into the, I mean, dude, just checks every box for me, man. It's so sick. Thanks. I really appreciate that. That's cool to hear. Yeah, I was really impressed by that record too. We're talking about the new Obsidious record for anyone that's unaware. I was just really impressed with the writing on it. I mean, I knew I was going to be impressed with the playing. And honestly, sometimes when I know that playing is going to be insane, I just kind of don't even listen to those records because I assume that the music is going to suck. <laughs> right. <laughs> but since I knew you and like knew that I really like what you do, I listened to the record and was like really, really impressed by how good the writing is, how good the songs are, how good the riffs are. Of course, the playing's great, but like uh, the music itself is actually really good, which um, was really cool. For some reason, I'm curious what you guys think. Why is that so rare with virtuosic guitar bands? Like, why does why is it so rare to find good writers? Just want to say thank you. Thanks for, for your words. I mean, our main focus when we write, obviously we want to express ourselves with our instruments and what we are working on and, and all the technical stuff as well. But in the end, um, we knew that there's going to be a singer. So all the music we write is, is based also based on the whole picture. So uh, it's not only about playing fast riffs and everything. I mean, there are, there are a lot of slow parts as well, really easy stuff to play. There are riffs which are really easy to play too on that. And I think it's uh, good to have the balance between having more instrumental proggy parts and but then also on the other side, more simpler stuff. And, and the combination is what we uh, wanted to have on that record. Yeah. To your original question, like feeling like it's rare to find guys who are really sick who also write intentionally composed or mature music. I think about it a lot. I wonder if it's almost like, and I'm curious to hear what you guys both think about this, but like, it's almost like a perception thing where like, for example, I think because we both know that Raphael can play the shit and that they all actually can play that music, 
in the back of our minds, it means something different because you're hearing it as like, I'm also not a guy who's like, you know, in the 2022 with everything being hyper edited and all that stuff. Like it's also its own aesthetic and it's cool. Like I'm all for crazy alien sounding stuff that like could never be played by a human being. But I think when you know it's actually performed, it makes you think, okay, I don't even have to wonder about whether or not this is real. What else am I listening for now? It's kind of like, I think there's like some of that at play because it's almost like maybe for me, when I know it's actually being played, I'm more willing to consider what they're trying to say compositionally. That makes sense. You know, with certain types of music where it isn't supposed to sound like a human did it, like Charles Caswell's stuff. Right, right. And I've recorded him. I know he's an incredible guitar player. He's one of the very best I've ever worked with. He can do that stuff. And, but it's, he can do that stuff, but the way that he produces it, it's meant to sound just not human. And that's the aesthetic. And, and so, but the fact that I do know that he's capable of it makes me respect him more. However, I think that the reason that lots of times you'll get virtuosity and writing as two different things is just because of what people focus on. So, you know, they focus 12 hours a day for 10 or 15 years on playing and like 30 minutes on writing, they're going to be overdeveloped as players and underdeveloped as writers. Um, so I think it's a lot of, a lot of it, in my opinion, has to do with what it is that people focus on. I've worked with and known people that are unbelievable guitar players, but would write like five riffs a year. Right, yeah, so yeah. how are you going to keep up with someone that's like writing all the time? Because you have to mature with your writing same way that you do with your playing. For sure, yeah. It's kind of like depends on where you slot into it. I mean, there are some guys who are just like freakish session players who writing's not even like they're just like, you know, give me the music, I'll pop in and, and just do my thing versus like the kind of modern all-in-one player, composer, producer thing, right? And that's why with the Obsidian stuff, I think it's sick that like you guys are an actual band and you sound like a band. You know what I mean? That's... Like that translates immediately on the recording. Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of stuff together, like uh, from from the writing perspective, and for me also, writing is is like, I mean, there are so many things to discover in that topic. It's it's like learning another instrument. So, whenever we sit down and and write on stuff, we really talk about certain parts we we talk about it it's very detailed what we are talking about sometimes even if it's one or two notes or something so we do a lot of that together and i think that also makes it kind of smooth so to say because um when sebastian for example our drummer writes a riff or something then i mean most of the time it's it's just not possible to play it on guitar i'll take his idea and then I just make my own thing out of it. And then Linus is doing his bass parts on it, and this keeps everything together. Let me stop you right there, because what you're saying is backwards compared to how it usually works. Usually a guitar player will write something for a drummer, and the drummer's like, I can't play this. <laughs> <laughs> you're hitting four cymbals at the same time, dude. Yeah, like something for eight arms. It's not usually that the drummer will write guitar parts that are then impossible. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in that case... I mean, everybody of us is like involving stuff uh, or throwing ideas into the pot and then we just pick out the best ones and yeah. You said last time you came on when you're like 
sitting down to work for the day, you have to make a decision whether or not today's going to be like guitar practice kind of day, you know, aside from like the basics is today going to be like dedicated towards getting better or maintaining on guitar or is today going to be dedicated towards writing or is it going to be dedicated towards learning something? Do you still do that? Yeah. Yeah. When I'm writing, I only write when I'm practicing, for example, and sometimes I also get ideas while I'm practicing. It's, I mean, it's uh, pretty normal, I guess. When you sit down, play, there are some ideas coming in, then I'll just record it on my phone or something really quick, and then I keep on practicing if I think that the, the idea is, is good. But other than that, normally I, I focus on one thing because when I write, I'm in a different mood, So to say, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, it does. By the way, pro tip for everybody, the Bogren Digital Amp Sims um, have a record feature on them now, which is the greatest thing ever. And now you don't need to use uh, you know, a voice memo or something. You just hit record on the amp sim, oh, record nice. your idea right then and there, and it puts it in a folder all organized. It's like the simplest thing, but it's like such a problem solver. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, so just pro tip for everyone. Spiro, I'm wondering about the same thing with you, because you do a bunch of shit. Like you engineer, you're actually a really good engineer. You write for commercials. You just do all kinds of stuff. But then here you are like achieving virtuosic levels of ability on guitar. And it's like, I always wonder how do you do that? Because if you were a shitty engineer, that would make more sense to me. <laughs> or if I heard the stuff you write for commercials and it wasn't good, it would make sense to me that like you're like overdeveloped as a player. That's what I'm used to. Um, yeah. I'm not used to someone being good at all of them. So I'm just wondering, how do you actually divide your time? I appreciate that. So it's a bit of a weird one in that I tend to kind of, I'll have like long stretches of time where I am just kind of obsessed and hyper-focused about a particular skill or task or whatever it is. Like, you know, I'll spend eight months just like learning everything there is to know about D-Day converters. And then another seven months about like pick slanting as it pertains to left hand fingerings. And it's kind of like, instead of dividing, instead of being like a sensible, balanced human being at any given time, I'm usually just so all in on one thing to where over the course of five or so years, I've developed, whether it's muscle memory or the connections in my brain to kind of have something that's repeatable in whatever area. But to the point of like, you know, waking up in the morning and being like, okay, what am I going to do today? It's very much like, on the one hand, you'll have people where you have the discipline to just, whether or not you feel like doing a given thing, you do it, and the consistency is what gets you to the end goal. Versus for me, it's almost like, at my best, I feel like I will only pursue the thing that I know I can do the absolute best at that given time. So if I wake up and I'm like, okay, my hands like are not moving today, but I have 20 minutes of music in my head that I could you know, get from my brain into a DAW, I'll just sit there and do that all day, even if I was supposed to be teaching that day and do all the stuff. I mean, I'll still, of course, still teach, but like <laughs> maybe the students, <laughs> but, but the, but the time, but the time I would spend, you know, sitting there for two hours, like getting warmed up, I would maybe just kind of divert my focus where I think I can actually get the most out of myself. And it yields results that I've not wanted. It's tricky because it's not very practical at times. Like it, like there are times where I'm like, I got stuff to record for people like I got to be dialed in but like 
I have a song in my head that I cannot, like I gotta strike while the iron's hot kind of thing. And then there are times where I'm supposed to be doing compositional stuff and I'm like, my right hand is moving at an inhuman level right now. I kind of got to take advantage of this. So it's kind of like a not being strict on what I allow myself to do, more just like kind of letting my body or brain choose what the task is going to be for that day. It's a weird. That's impressive. That's actually more how I am naturally. However, I have to like reel it in because of deadlines, I guess. Yeah. So deadlines will force me into a certain direction. The thing I've noticed is if I'm like practicing and then an idea happens, for a riff like i know there's some riffs where the moment it pops out like i know i need to like get on this now this is going to be a song and it's going to be a sick one and if i was to keep practicing the song would never happen like it happened the other day when i got the eight string i just was like well i should get comfortable with this i've never played on an eight string so i should probably just do what i normally do but practice on the eight and within the first five minutes i just played a riff was like, all right, it's on. And <laughs> had an entire song for the new record in like four hours and it's sick. And I've noticed that I need to like pay attention to that. I mean, when that happens, I need to stop what I'm doing and go with that thing. For sure. Because it doesn't happen all the time. And sure, I can sit down and write. Like I can do that discipline thing you were talking about where you sit down, you do the thing. I'm not great at that, but I have like gotten better over the years. But the quality of what I make when I do that is not as good as when the light bulb turns on without asking for it to, the light bulb just comes on and I go with it. That's always the best stuff. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about that real quick, is like turning the light bulb on, so to speak, as a creative thing. Like that's a lot more difficult than once you figured out how to get the most out of your body in, in the sense of like, you know, turning the light bulb on in order to play guitar really well is like, okay, use a massage gun, like don't eat inflammatory foods, warm up properly. Like, like there's physical, tangible things I can be doing to know that in about 48 hours, I'll be playing guitar really well versus like, it's not so easy to just say, all right, I'm going to like, you know, lay back and contemplate reality for 20 minutes and get inspired to write a song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're, they're different kinds of things, but uh, yeah, I don't know if either of you relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. But I've noticed that if I make myself write like in a disciplined way, like at least a little bit each day, then that moment of light bulb will happen. It might happen in like three weeks, but as long as I've been like writing and I get warmed up into the writing, that's where I find it similar. I know it's pretty predictable that all I have to do is like do that for like a week or two and then something awesome is going to happen. And even if what I'm doing in those two weeks sucks, I have, I just have enough experience at this point to where I know that I just have to keep going and something cool will happen. Raphael, what were you about to say? Yeah, no, I just wanted to say that writing uh, music can also be very difficult sometimes because I've also experienced that days uh, where, you, where you said before that uh, deadlines, it's kind of important in the business because, I mean, there are labels and agencies and everything. So there are deadlines and this forces you sometimes to 
right even don't you even if you don't feel like it this is quite difficult also for me i mean sometimes i sit down for a whole day and then in the end uh, you have maybe one riff or maybe eight bars and then on the next day you listen to it and you think oh maybe that's not that cool maybe i should uh start all over again or do something else i don't know because there are times where it's just uninspired yeah i mean dude the other thing is like i'll go crazy over like the perception of the things you write over time like you know i'll think something sucks and then listen to it six months later and i'm like what was i like why did i not follow that up that was awesome and then i'll spend like weeks working on what I think is the sickest thing ever. And then like, I find a bounce on my phone like a year later and I'm like, was I like, was I like high the whole time? Like, what the hell was that? That was terrible. You know what I mean? It's like so, it's so weird. Or or even like with guitar playing, like I, you know, I'll, if I'm like, I'll film myself practicing and I'll cut a little second of it to throw it on Instagram and I'll like send it to some buddies and I'll be like, oh, is this like tight enough to like post? And they'll be like, like what the fuck are you talking about like yeah that's insane and and like the there's like an hour window where like my brain is still so like dialed in and like the perception of time is narrowed to where like you're hearing every little minute mistake and like it's moving in slow motion you just think it sucks and then like the next morning when your brain's working a lot slower you're just like oh my god yeah that was sick you know it's like yeah i feel exactly the same thing sometimes Uh, it's funny that he said that because also i mean if if you have a clip playing and and you're like okay that take was good i can i can post it on instagram and then and then you hear like one little note where is uh where it's not that um clean (laughs) yeah yeah and you're like uh maybe i don't post it You're like, yeah, everyone's going to like only hear that one yeah. thing and, and think it sucks. Yeah, right. And I'm going to have to quit guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really weird, the mental games that we play. The problem for me is that sometimes I'm right. So when I'm going nuts about something, thinking it sucks, I'm lots of times I'm wrong and like it's awesome and I should have just like chilled out. But sometimes I am right. Then so then totally. how do you know the difference? Because I have definitely killed bad ideas lots of times yeah. and I've definitely like had to make those decisions where, you know, you veto something and do it over. Like, I mean, as the producer part of my brain, like that's a big part of it is like knowing what's good enough and what's not. It just becomes harder when it's my own music. I can't tell you how tortured No Rest, No End made me while I was mm-hmm. writing it. And um and there were like three different versions that you guys haven't heard where there's one version that's like seven minutes long with no verse, no chorus there. It just, and there's all kinds of really good riffs in those other versions that I had to kill because it didn't fit the song in terms of like what it is now, what it needed to become. But like by torturing myself, I was able to get it to where it is now. However, it is really tough because some of those riffs that got cut are really good. And then also sometimes I will hate something and then love it later or love it now, then hate it later. So then the question for me is always, when am I being crazy and when am I right? Or is it both? I don't know. It's tough. I mean, sometimes it also depends on what your goal is because by that I mean, 
I, I can only speak for myself, but when I sit down and write something, I'm like, okay, I wanna, I wanna play, uh, or I wanna, I wanna write a song which is like, whatever, four minutes, five minutes, which has a clear structure, which has a, a, a good chorus, a good hook line, whatever, and then uh, a nice solo section, and and so if that's my goal, and I create my ideas, and then in the middle of my work, I'm like. There are too many parts in that, and and it's it's like going from one thing to another uh, without any context. Then maybe it could uh, lead into into a nice instrumental song or whatever. But if my goal is to write this one catchy song, then I should not use those ideas for that. <laughs> I run into a problem where I'll start with a goal and then just completely forget what my goal was halfway through. Right to where. I'm following some trail of inspiration, and then inevitably the th remnants of what my original goal were are at odds with what this new direction is, and I'm sitting there two days later confused as to like why I did something. It's interesting though, because I, I feel like that is also though the weird space that can yield like really unique results, like like crossing over things that don't necessarily or that you wouldn't expect to uh, work well together. The other thing is like, and I, I don't know if. Either of you relate to this, but all kind of sometimes like it'll be a an engineering kind of thing that will inspire a certain piece of music. Like if I'm like playing on like a super giant, like fat, flubby rectifier sound, <laughs> I'll be like, oh, okay. Like I could write like a four minute dirgy banger that is just supposed to be super like kind of weighty and pissed off and gross. But then inevitably I'm like halfway through, I'll be like, oh, a sick like tech death riff would be cool. And then I'm like, okay, like remember why you started writing this song? Cause that, that might not, uh, that might not work. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. That's the editing process. I think that writing songs, there's, well, at least for me, there's like the creative part of it. And then there's the editorial side of it. So when I'm in the creative side of it, I will do the tech death riff, even if the song started as something else, because who knows where it's going to lead? Why stop yourself from doing something potentially great? But then when I get to the editorial side of things, then maybe that tech riff, death riff will be put in a folder for later. In No Rest, No End, the whole Baroque section was not originally part of the song. The song originally started the first minute it was the way it is, and then it went into a whole other thing for like five more minutes. It was kind of orchestral, kind of epic, heavy. But like this Baroque thing I wrote, I kept thinking, I don't know where this is going to go, but like this is going to be sick in a song if I like, can make it into metal because I wrote it on a harpsichord and guitar. Oh, that's interesting. As No Rest, No End started to like develop, it was like, this song is awesome and we need to just forget about everything that was here before. Even if I like it, there needs to be something here that just like basically takes it to the just next levels it. Like if yeah, people yeah. like the song already, they think it's a banger already, think the riffs are sick, like everything, like this needs to basically jack up an in intensity. How can we do that? And yeah, how yeah. can we follow up? I was already thinking of having you guys in the solo section. What can we do that would like follow that well? Cause that's, gonna because the, the guitar playing is gonna be the solos are gonna be better guitar playing than i can do how do i follow this with something that's interesting enough to keep people listening that 
that's a it's a tough it's a tough thing when you know that there's going to be solos early in the song that you then have to like follow and not necessarily do something more virtuosic, but you have to follow it in a way to where it's not like a sad trombone. Right, right, right. Afterwards. So it was like, okay, this Baroque part that was written on its own is in the right key to follow. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, I think it works. I was going to say something about that song that I love that I feel like is kind of a, an underappreciated thing that I always get. I always just love when I hear like when a song has like a riff that seems like an important riff, like a great riff. And then it doesn't end up being repeated over and over and beat you to death. That first verse, riff, with the double kicks, that part to me, like, it's so sick. And I love that you don't, like, beat us over the head with it, like, three more times. Because I feel like so many people would just be inclined to be like, all right, you got to hear that again because it's so good. But it's like, it makes it, like, more special. Because, it like, I listen to the song over and over just to get to that spot again. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, thank you. That riff in particular. So when writing the song, like I have this thing that I refer to as a doth riff. Like for me, a doth riff is like super catchy riff that's heavy as fuck, but like that is just like an anchor. It's like a musical anchor. It's like the riff that makes a song. And I feel like every song of ours has to have at least one, maybe two, but there has to be at least one riff like that that's like it's not a chorus it's not a vocal part it's nothing no solo it's just like this riff that like you can basically hang the entire song on and in the original version of that there was orchestra all over it that i deleted probably pissed jesse off oh really yeah i was thinking for a long time i was like we need a doth riff in this song like this (laughs) song is just going to be like orchestral insanity just like orchestral metal without that riff like it needs that riff and i took three weeks trying to write that type of riff until that one happened and then it was like boom there it is (laughs) nothing can be happening during this part besides double bass and you know bass guitar and riffs i think those riffs are very important to respect like you could put solos over them you could put vocals but like you're gonna be getting in the way of what the whole I guess what the power of that riff is and to reuse it takes away from its power. I think there you go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it's different than like riff salad, I guess, where, you know, with the tech death thing of like riff after riff, after riff, after riff and no real structure, that riff actually is the basis for lots of stuff that happens later in the song that just comes back as variations. But I think that it's like the more you repeat that type of part, the less power it has. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it's usually kind of the other way around where it'll be like, because that's like one of the simple, like, that might be the most simple part of the song. Yeah. And it's like, but it's it's like almost the sickest part because you, it makes you respect that part more. But I feel like it's usually like, you know, the one, the part that happens once is usually the crazy tech deathy thing. And then you get the simple thing over and over. <laughs> that's true. Like, and I like that that's kind of the inverse. I think of it like, not like a pop song, but kind of like a pop song in terms of like riffs are metal's version of a hook. I know that there's melody in metal. You can have melodic vocalists, guitar melodies, but really like the metal equivalent of a pop hook or pop chorus is the riff. For sure. Like when you think of Master of Puppets or like any of these huge metal songs, 
Yeah, the vocals matter, of course. It all matters. Double track rhythm guitars and heavy metal are the vocalist. I mean, that's like 100%. Yeah. Sorry, Sean. (laughs) We remember these songs for the riffs as much as anything else. Like every one of these classic songs has at least one riff like that. I think it's important to respect those and try and create them. Definitely. Sure. Yeah. When we write, it's the same thing. We focus on one or at least one idea in the song should be really strong, like a strong riff, either a strong riff or or a melody. You can build a whole song around one riff, just doing variations. And I mean, in in that Darth song, it's... um, I mean, it's, it, it sounds massive. I think it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, dude. Thanks. Well, I noticed that with Obsidious, by the way, that you guys do that. You'll have like riff riffs in your songs. Like, and I don't just mean like heavy parts, I mean, like actual riffs that are like actual themes that um, are like the song anchor, which I think is awesome. To me, that's okay. So that's what I feel like when I hear super technical music, and I get bored, it's because they typically don't do that thing. Like the songs oftentimes don't have that thing that ties it all together, I guess. Right. Arcspire do it. That's why they're so awesome. Yeah. Like if you look at all the bands that are hyper technical, but like are awesome, they all have like that thing. Like they all have at least one per song I've noticed. Their, their like sonic footprint though is also like so intimidating. That like it, I feel like it almost wouldn't matter. Like a band like that, to me, that stuff's equally on the yeah, the sonics and the engineering and the kind of like the overall construction of that thing. Like that's it's such a strong kind of extreme thing. But I, I was gonna say, Raphael, it seems like your band also. It's like the riffs are also outlining important harmony, and it feels like the harmony is also just like the thing that's actually the bedrock of all the music that would exist independent of the arrangement or the playing or any of that. And I feel like that to me is the thing that's like, that to me is hit or miss for me, unless the aesthetic is all of the other stuff. But um, for a lot of the stuff I'm into, it's like the riffs are just outlining whatever harmony is trying to be implied. So I, I don't know if that's like intentional as you guys go about it, but. Obviously also sometimes a theme, you know, can also be just a chord progression or something. And then we build something around that or uh, we build something around a rhythmical pattern. For example, we do a riff out of it and then late, but later in the song, we use the same pattern, but playing lead guitar over it. And in the rhythm guitars, we do the, the opposite of it. So for example, if I have four 16th notes, I play the first one and the last one. Then in the next part, in, in the other part, I do the variation, uh, which is the opposite. So I play the second and the third one instead of the first and the last one. And and we play with those kind of, I would say, concepts, or it's not really concepts, it's it's like tools we we use and and we try to get better from time to time at building a whole song around one idea because i mean that's that's what's ha- what's happening in in pop music all the time they they have the chord progression for three and a half minutes and they never change it but it's coming in and out certain things in the production like you add some another uh, vocal track or or you you add 
certain percussion parts or anything. And, and that's what we do with orchestration. So that's another, uh, which is really an important thing for writing. Yeah. Totally different genre, but Corn, uh, the Issues record, that's where I first discovered a metal band or heavy band doing exactly what you just said from pop of keeping the same thing going, but bringing elements in and out and in and out and keeping almost the same progression going through the same song. But like, it's the same chord progression, but the way he changed the vocals, now it's the pre-chorus, but it's so obviously the pre-chorus, which is really impressive because when you hear a local band play the same chord progression over and over, it's because they suck. <laughs> but like, <laughs> then you true. hear it in pop or a band like Korn and Corn don't do this in every song, but like when Corn do it on some of their really good songs and everything is the same, but the vocal changes are some weird guitar thing comes in and you know, it's the next section of the song. Yeah, that's like actually really hard to do to like make it, make the listener know without a doubt that the song has moved on when you still keep the tempo and the basic harmonic structure identical even the riff identical. It's some pretty skillful writing. Yeah, yeah. What were you about to say about orchestration? For example, I mean, we had this earlier with the with the riff that sometimes it's just good to have like drums, bass, and rhythm guitars and nothing else. So for example, that's also a tool to do within one song because for example if you have the rest of the songs full of samples and stuff then this this could be a good contrast or if you build the whole song up on just having these four musicians and then just adding some things in the first chorus maybe you add some other things in the second chorus you, or you add a lead guitar for the second chorus so that's um that's what I mean by orchestration. And, and I think that's not necessarily something you have in mind when you start writing. That's something which comes like over the time when you are already into the song and, and a lot of parts are already there. Then you think, okay, I want to spice up this uh, part by adding another melody or harmony. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. When you start to know what the song is missing basically. Yeah. I think, I mean, at least for me, that's what it is that like, yeah. once you're well into a song, you're starting to know like, well, what's good about it and what isn't quite there. Yeah. Yeah. Or where you and think, how do we improve those parts? Yeah. Or where you think, okay, you have another repetition of this, of this riff, but it, it kind of gets boring maybe and then you just add something else just to make some kind of progression yeah i tend to just kind of assume that my listener has a painfully short attention span right like as a as kind of a an overcorrection. so like i'm always just asking unless you know it's it's a piece of music where i I'm going to kind of make the point to be a bit disrespectful <laughs> in that point. Like there are some times where you want to kind of test people's patience if that's the point of what you're writing, but you know, just kind of assume that people are just dopamine starved and yeah. uh, that, you know, that they're, 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 yeah, I think you, you get what I'm trying to say, but yeah, yeah, especially with, for example, with intros or outros, it's actually quite yeah. hard to uh, <laughs> create good intros. Because, yeah, you don't know if people are going to listen to it. <laughs> when you start, like, yeah. with a with a silent thing, which which comes in, like, 
very slowly, then you're like, I don't know, delusion, for example. And that's why that song is so sick to me. Like, because I often, if I if I have a musical idea that I that I feel like is important to me that I'm about to start writing, like usually it in some like dumb grandiose fashion, I'll be like, okay, this is gonna have like this sick intro and like. You know, you gotta like work for it a little bit, but then inevitably, yeah, like often people are like, yeah, dude, can you just like shorten the intro a little bit? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But seriously, that song Delusion, like, I mean, it's also just beautifully voice led and like the, the arrangement's so good, the choir. So like when that comes in, it just, it does everything for me. But, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it can be a double edged sword for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were unsure if we should put that intro in it. Dude. Yeah, that is my favorite part of the whole record, like, hands down. Thanks, yeah. man. I will say there are some songs, though, that don't need an intro. And some of those are also some of the sickest songs, like where I'm, I'm writing a song and I'm like, yeah, this could literally start with a drum fill and yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. You know, like that's also, it's also a great feeling. It's just like different songs mean different right. things or what you what you want the listener to feel, you know what I mean? But yeah, it is, it is funny. Like I'll, often I'll do a bounce. And I'll be, it'll be like four minutes long and two minutes of that are intros and outros. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> During your process, it's also important to let the time fly a little bit and then listen back to it again, because then you can listen to it from another perspective. Because when you're in that yeah. uh, process of writing, you cannot feel what the listener feels. So it's a totally different perspective. A thing I do like obsessively that I'm curious to see if either of you do this Um a few years ago, I started when I would do a bounce of something instead of like listening to the file, like as it exists, I'll only listen to it in other keys, like pitch shifted. Oh, wow. To where each time I listen, I'm literally like pitch shifting it up or down to a different key. So like that way I just have the freshest like harmonic perspective of what's happening musically, right? Because like there's this thing, especially with like denser, more complex music, like your ear will just kind of sink into all that harmony and, and, and all that rhythm and everything that's going on. I mean, I mean, yeah, rhythm's not going to change, obviously. But yeah, I mean, it, I guess harmony and melody, like that's the big one. And oftentimes I'll be convincing myself that like something's okay. And then I, I drop it down, you know, a fourth <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that one, Chief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, it just also helps like not fatigue the musical ideas too much. But yeah, I don't know if, if either of you ever do that. But Yeah, I do that all the time, actually. Really? I've never done that. That's interesting. Yeah, it shines a whole new light on things. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. But I almost always at least check that out just to see. Yeah, a few things, like especially if I'm writing, right? One, by just completely destroying the audio, it's making me not think about like the mix or anything at all. Mm -hmm. You know, when if, if you use, there's a couple apps, like Transcribe is one of them, an iOS app, and then AnyTune is another one. AnyTune, yeah, I used that one. Yeah, but yeah, you just like pitch shift it up or down, it's going to force the brain like purely to hear the musical information and the harmony, not anything else. And Or at least as you're writing it, right? It can be really helpful. Oh, wow. I'll try that out. I've learned something new now, <laughs> completely new. I've never heard that. Yeah, check it out. Let me know what you think. You went to Berkeley, right? Yes. I know I saw you there. Wow, so that's three of us. Wow. Wow, man. Three's a crowd, huh? <laughs> yeah. Who graduated? I didn't. Uh, I, I technically graduated, although there's like two credits I still got to do. So none of us. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, that was, uh, that was one of those things, like there was some class I used transcribe for 
I had it on my phone and like, I was just like listening to music and it like, and I remember like, I was working on something that I was so burnt out on and I just checked it in another key and it was like, I heard, heard the song for the first time. Cause it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. It's like your brain is only pretend paying attention to, yeah, how the harmony functions and not mm-hmm. at all to anything else, you know, especially if, you know, when you're in demo mode and you're not trying to like get bogged on about how shitty it sounds or whatever, like. Yeah. So out of curiosity, how much do you think about, and I'm curious with both of you, how much do you think about the actual technical goings-ons harmonically while you're writing? And the reason I'm asking, I have a friend, shout out Nazar, who is a brilliant, brilliant musician who, genius level, he's like a theory, just computer. But he told me that when he writes, he's not thinking like that, but he can't help it. Like his brain just shoots out whatever's happening. So he's doing analysis in real time, like complex collegiate level theoretical analysis while writing, while listening. It's almost like having perfect pitch for theory or for harmony. Like, I'm just wondering, I almost never actually actively use it. It's always ear. So I'm just wondering with you guys. It's actually like very involved for me, but to the point to where I've been working on a record now, the music I'm actually writing is actually like, it's directly inspired by harmonic concepts. And I think there's this thing where, especially with like modal harmony, there's actually so much music that exists just in the information of like diatonic harmony of chords and scales that like, you know, I I wrote a whole album, I mean, kind of started off like just with chord progressions on a nylon string guitar that I ended up basically, you know, one two chord vamp that pulls from some particular harmonic structure would be the thing that would influence a five minute song. And it's like, so it is really involved for me. Obviously, if I'm, you know, if I'm just playing guitar and well, okay, it's hard. I'll be honest. I am actually always thinking about it. I can't okay. say that I'm not often thinking about it. It does directly influence the music. And I know there's a bit of a tendency to kind of, you know, Facebook comment section, like talk about how there's a lot of like controversy around that a little bit, but the way in which I use it, it's actually like the music I write is the way it is because of that. It's kind of a... Yeah, that makes totally sense. That makes sense. I think the controversy and all that is just people talking about other people. Cause like at the end of the day, your process is your own and what works for you is you. Yeah. Right. And people say like, People use the word theory, and that also drives me crazy. And like, really, what I, people often mean is like having a trained ear to understand harmony. Like, that's really yep. like right because like you know, I know a, I knew a lot of kids that like knew theory on paper, but like wouldn't be able to identify anything to save their lives with their ear, and it doesn't do you any good. So it's always on for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now I can definitely shut it off though, in the sense there are sometimes where, for example, like I'll read a song where it's playing between three modes of different modal families in parallel like you know it'll be like phrygian dominant in parallel with mixo flat six in parallel with like you know double harmonic major all of these scales can like there there is a structure in which you can weave these in between each other and voice lead them really nicely and like the motions that they give off are actually very distinct to those like modal families and there are times where i'll be writing and then i'll be writing a riff and i'll be like oh wait that note isn't in that scale and i'll be like okay, hold on a minute. Like, I'll kind of like argue with myself about like whether or not to actually stay true to the structure I'm writing around or to just kind of be a little bit more rock and roll about it and kind of do whatever. And I think for a while I was a little too like, and again, I mean, the album name is Platonist and it's literally about like exploring these 
structures that exist independent. Like, like I have a very, I could talk on and on about how I think music isn't really a created thing. It's like, a, especially with harmony, it feels like it's actually more like a discovered thing of structures that already exist. Like if you, you know, play with diatonic chords of a scale, like that's just math and it ends up just being geometry. And it's just like, you know, it's simpler than, or, or rather it's like a lot of music in its purest sense doesn't feel written to me. Now, musical ideas like lyrics and more unique melodies and relationships of musical ideas are absolutely like original creations. But like, to me, like voice leading around a circle of fifths, no one wrote that. That That's like a discovery yeah, to me, yeah. like a physics discovery, you know what I mean? And then, so I've been writing around a lot of music around that approach, but lately I've been trying to be like, all right, dude, like, hold on channel the 14 year old that was listening to blackened you know what i mean like like chill out a little bit on on all this so there's definitely a balance but yeah anyway rafael take the floor man <laughs> <laughs> well the main thing um when i write i don't really think about theory uh i would say uh theory is for me like an expansion pack or something like it's like something extra you have it's like having more tools for something like of course i have also i i write a lot of riffs and a lot of uh songs also based on some theoretical concepts but then also even though if i use whatever let's say augmented scale something like this where i say okay i have three different tonal centers then i want to um it's it's more that my inner ear leads me to the next one and then i'm like okay yeah le let's go there and then obviously i i think about what to solo over this progression i can use this and i can use that this sounds better then i try it out so it's also a lot of trial and error but obviously it's kind of both at the same time because in real time i also analyze it but in the end for me it doesn't matter as long as it sounds good. For example, in Iconic, it's the title track of our album. There is a minor seven flat five uh, chord in it. And then uh, our singer, Javi, went uh, from the seventh of the chord up a half step in the melody. And it's actually a major seven of the chord, even though, though this note is not in the chord. Right. It sounds good in the context. Mm -hmm. And I was like, at that time, I was like, hmm. Awesome. Is that <laughs> cool or not? And Spicy. then, um, and then, uh, I mean, every uh, harmony teacher would, would kill you. Um, I also use, for example, um, for the major seven voicings, I use um, sometimes... Uh, the root as a top note because it works in that case that's also a thing where if you go by theory rules in that case it's it you shouldn't do that but in that context it sounded good so i was like okay i'll i'll keep that am i wrong in remembering that you had like a tonal harmony like classical education at some point yeah yeah i i went to a high school where they teach from very early on uh, theory and ear training and I was always good at ear training so that there was never a big challenge for me but even though I, uh, I'm I'm far away of having perfect picture or anything but uh, that helped me also a lot because I have something in my head or in my inner ears I hear something and I want to transport uh, it to either 
paper or in the DAW, that process was was always kind of easy for me, but only because I've learned ear training and theory. For sure. You know, on the no rest, no end Baroque section, there's some stuff in there, two or three notes here and there, that would get me a bad grade <laughs> if I was to submit it in school as an assignment. When I was thinking about those tension notes or those clashing notes, whatever you want to call them, it's more clashing than tension because there were some notes that just technically don't belong. I was just thinking, but I'm not writing an assignment. Right. Like I'm writing for my extreme metal band and it sounds cool. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it. Yeah. However, on the orchestration, those notes came out like clearly, like it was like wrong note. So we just muted those parts of the orchestration. And then with just guitars and the orchestration that's still in there sounded fucking awesome. So, but when you added the high orchestration, not so awesome. So instead of change the part, just move the orchestration. Yeah. I mean, an awesome thing about just any rock inspired music, which extends obviously to metal and extreme metal, but like a lot of the stuff that came from Europe in the early 2000s or like, you know, I was a huge like Winter Sun, Bodum, you know, Flesh God fan. Like I'm super into a lot of that music that's inspired by like tonal harmony, like proper voice leading. But inevitably it's all done by metal guys who like usually there's that margin of error to where they're like, I don't, you know, whatever, like just this note will go here and make it cool. Yeah. But like to your point about that broke section too, I remember you had sent me a tab and I was playing through it. And because of the nature of how a lot of that music inspired by, you know, I guess we'll say for a, a vague term, classically inspired music, a lot of it's based on voice leading and inverting triads and inevitably shifting a note up or down a half step in that context can completely change what chord is being implied. Like whether it's, you know, an inversion of a chord at its root or a different diatonic chord of the key. And that subtle margin of like where four-part writing rules on a test are going to be subverted for the sake of just thinking something sounds better that's usually that like thing that makes something sound like heavy metal you know what i mean like like a lot of those records have just a bit of that kind of spontaneous decision making where someone's not paying attention to any rules or pulling books out and yeah that whole part is like how do i build tension and build tension and then build more tension and then build more and right, then more, yeah. <laughs> and then more. And it's like, that was the thinking about where it was headed, not like... And it finally resolves. Exactly. Yeah. That's important. It, not like, well, I get a bad grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but uh, this is all, again, theories, just people, sometimes they say, yeah, you're going to lose your musicality if you learn a theory and whatever. Yeah. I don't think that's true at all. Not, no, I either. If you lose it because of that, it wasn't very strong to begin with. <laughs> Probably. It didn't exist, no. I... The more you know, the better. Because, I mean, you don't have to follow rules, but you just know a lot more. And you know some tools in order to write music and, and improvise or play music at all. Yeah, it just helps. So that like kind of debate, right? You, you go to Facebook on some stupid post and it's everyone arguing about this like you'll see okay the comment right quote you don't need theory to write good music end quote and it's like okay maybe the dude who you love that wrote great music didn't but like are you that dude <laughs> well yeah well like so a trans a truly transformative album for me was periphery one i know misha has said like you know he doesn't know theory and wasn't 
thinking about any of that at the time when he wrote it. And people, I remember people would use that record as like evidence. Like, see, you don't, you don't need theory to like, to write dope music. And it's like, Misha didn't know theory, but his ear was so good and was so in tune to like actually self-consistent harmonic structures. So like, no, he's not thinking Lydian flat seven, but his ear is so good that every note was diatonic to Lydian flat seven. And that's why it sounds sick. It's not just because it's some magical, confusing mystery. It's, it's because he had an affinity and a really good ear to certain sounds that he was able to get. And like, if you know them, if you just know what they're called and how to get them, they're, it's like colors to paint with. They're available to you whenever you want. If It reminds me, hearing that, he didn't need it. It's like, are you him? Like, exactly, I remember yeah. once at my old studio in Florida, I had a really nice drum room, like really, really, really nice. And so sometimes people would come film there and there was some local band and their producer who rented it for like a night and they wanted to do this acoustic unplugged jam and film it. And it, the, it was horrific. It was like four vocalists with four acoustic guitars trying to do this like Alice in Chains thing. You say four acoustic guitars? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it was, it was rough stuff. And I remember them saying, well, Alice in Chains unplugged, the vocals were kind of out of tune, so it's fine. It's like, right. uh, yeah, you're comparing <laughs> yourselves to one of the best bands in the history of rock, one of the biggest bands in the history of rock. Are you guys, are you Jerry Cantrell? Are you Lane Staley? Right. Nope. Maybe you should try to sing in tune then. <laughs> do you write songs like they do? Are you as good? No, then the thing that people don't realize is that these great artists are great despite not knowing something, not because they don't know something. Like it's not the lack of theory knowledge that makes Misha great. Misha's brain is what makes Misha great. One thing I'll say about that though is, and this is what I've tried to check myself on, Misha's lack of theory knowledge is what also allowed that however many percent margin of quote error that does make it even more unique right so like you were saying Raphael, putting a major seven on a minor seven flat five chord mm -hmm. like those choices if you're aware of that rule like you're you're a lot less likely to break it so it's it's it is a, a bit of a slippery slope like there's definitely a balance there i mean it depends because also it's much easier to communicate if you can just tell your a bandmate hey this is a F major seven chord, then he knows what to do. If you talk to someone who is not able to see the notes where they are and, and what the chords are, then it's, it's simply not possible to communicate like this. So that's, that makes things much faster. For sure, yeah. I guess pros and cons. In playing off of each other on those solos, what were you guys thinking in terms of approaching, following each other and more than anything how did you approach that because like you guys hadn't worked together before you didn't really know each other it's not like you had some rapport built up so i'm wondering how you guys approach trading off solos and making it sound like you've got some you know a long history of writing solos together i mean for me it was clear that even though there's this trade-off the whole thing has a certain progression in terms of starting somewhere and then and then leading to a climax somewhere so there is a story to tell within this solo and uh, we got to split it up so what i did is basically jamming around that's what i always do when i 
when I uh, write solos, I, I first improvise a lot over that part to create some ideas. Uh, for me, it's also important what happens before the solo and what happens after the solo, because then I can see, okay, what does this song need on that specific part? If it's uh, going fast before everything is, is a lot, then maybe it needs some uh, certain melody um, for the start. Or if it's more a more slower part before or halftime part, maybe I can go double time from the beginning on. So it really depends on what happens before. So my approach for that uh, was just getting all those aspects together. And, and then in the end, obviously, it's also just... Yeah, some kind of uh, musical communication that happens there without any words. For sure, yeah. I think it's cool that there's there's like a, the arrangement, like it modulates in, as we play, right? Like it actually does. So I think that helps each of us kind of sound like ourselves, like as a subtle thing, right? Like if it was over the same progression, you might have to be a bit more adamant about like panning and changing the guitar tone and like making sure that we're communicating more but i think the fact that the arrangement accommodates that and probably i imagine you probably picked both of us because you know we probably have certain similar in influences and i thought it would work well <laughs> yeah I, I have a feeling we we you know have a have an affinity towards similar things you sent me it was like an it was like a mock-up you did of that first lick yeah and i was like all right he's he's going in he's catching the uh He's catching the 16th like let's <laughs> let's do it up you know what i mean like that was that was the okay to kind of to kind of put put my foot down you know <laughs> let's just do them and do them <laughs> you're right though about the structure so i've always worked with virtuosos so it's like previous lead guitar player in the band Amo yeah, no, is a, no kidding a god yeah. among men basically on guitar and like that was my training for how to build a section that will allow a great guitar player to shine part of like modulating for like each person's parts that helps the solo section develop and i feel like it doesn't lock you into anything but it kind of it kind of guarantees that you got to do something different than each other and it guarantees that it's going in a certain cohesive direction i think rather than yeah if it was all the same like no modulation, like all over the same riff or whatever, like it could just turn into like some meandering wang fest or something. Like you got to build the solo section to allow for great solos, I think. Definitely. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Also, I mean, the background is, is so important because if, you, if it's just the same chord progression, the same riff all the time, then obviously, yeah, of course you can do trade-offs and everything, but the song doesn't really need it, so to say. So yeah. in that case, it makes totally sense because it changes that there are certain changes already. So uh, it totally makes sense to split that up. Yeah, and dude, you went out, man. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you did some you did some wild stuff on that on that second pass. You too. I got really inspired for the final thing when I heard your stuff, man. Really crazy. Thank you, dude. I appreciate it. Sir, what were you doing there at the end rhythmically where it's, I can't verbalize it. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I mean like the last three notes where it's like, it's like shifted off or something. I'm trying to like remember what the rhythm was. Cause it's like straight 16th. 
It's like something like that. I don't remember. It was probably also like the picking, like often. And yeah, Raphael, I wonder if you relate to this at all. But like you know, often a technique will also influence what comes out. Like so, I got to a certain point and I knew it was going to modulate back up. So I was trying to kind of outline whatever might resolve nicely there and. For whatever reason with the fingering like it was comfortable to do this like economy thing and um for whatever reason that rhythm just kind of worked well for it and i thought it was a nice break in between you know straight just you know balls to the wall the whole time to get back to you know whatever he was gonna do but uh just kind of like slow it down before it inevitably picks up again but yeah it makes totally sense really awesome last thing i want to ask both of you so both of you have insane picking hands and just by listening to your di's or your guitar soloed or just by watching your instagram videos both of you your picking hands are so they're so they're like machine guns basically and it seems like you're picking really hard but i don't understand how you could possibly pick as hard as it sounds and also be that fast and precise so i'm just wondering with the two of you do you consider yourselves to be picking really hard or have you just figured out a way to make it sound ultra percussive and nuts? Yeah, this is a big one. Like, so short answer, no, I'm at least for myself, I'm usually not picking hard, but the analogy I like to give is like, if you're an audio guy, you know what I mean? But like, if you look at like an ADSR or like, you know, the shape of like an, like an envelope shaper, it's almost like, like what makes something sound percussive is because it's has like a high amplitude relative to something that's quiet, right? So like you need that difference for it to sound percussive. And I kind of get that effect just with muting in the sense that by muting in a certain way, choking the sustain of the note so much makes the initial pick attack sound so much harder than it actually is. Mm -hmm. If you take a signal of like a really soft pick attack, right, in a DAW and you apply like a very steep cut in volume after the initial transient, and you boost it up in volume, it'll sound like someone picked really hard, but that's only because the sustain is so much quieter relative to the transient. It's almost like a psychoacoustic thing to where like the muting just kind of shapes that in a, in a certain way. But yeah, Raphael, I don't know if you, if you relate it all to that. I mean, for me, I pick as hard as necessary. So definitely not too soft, but also the muting you mentioned, um, I do the same thing. So I mute, for faster stuff, I mute the guitar in, in, in that sense so that it also gets this kind of per uh, percussive sound. Also, I figured out, um, actually, uh, I, I didn't uh, do this uh, on purpose. I mean, uh, for my left hand also, I really only put down my finger when I have to play. So right after that, oh, yeah. I go back up again so that only this note is uh, ringing at one time at the time so there is no overlapping so that's also very important uh, to get that sound and also um, the last thing I practiced my right hand technique in groupings so when I practice faster stuff I never practice the whole thing I practice in groupings, groupings of 16th notes from one click to another. So it's not like five different movements from one to one, but it's like one movement, training myself to feel yeah. that as one movement. So it's one, two, three, four, one, 
one, two, three, four, one. So that's uh, so uh, there are really small shapes putting together in the end. And I also kind of hear myself. I'm not sure if that is a good or a bad thing or but whatever. I do it. I do accents actually on the on the click. That's the way I do it. Awesome. Well, I think uh, we need to end now. So I want to thank both of you for taking the time to do this. And I love both of your work. It's been a pleasure. Dude, thank you for having me, man. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invite. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Anytime, guys.